I had a very interesting episode when I went, uh, I was 28 years old, I went to New York, I had a writing grant, and what I did, I printed out the excerpts of my first novel, Celebration of Life, translated by my friend, Banya Tarubes, and I just, you know, I looked for the addresses of the biggest uh, publishing houses in New York, and I put these excerpts in envelopes, and I sent them. And of course, I didn't have any answers, but uh, I had an answer for, from Soho Press, and uh, the editor, wow. yes, an editor wrote that he wants to meet me. So we met in the downtown in a pub, and then he said that he, uh, he went to see this crazy girl from this unknown country, who just, you know, putting her um, excerpts in English and just, you know, sending to the biggest publishing houses, to New York. And then he said to me, Nora, let's talk now seriously. If you want to be a famous writer, you need to stay in New York and you need to start write in English. And now I'm saying, hello, Soho Press. <laughs> Still writing in Latvian. <laughs> Nora Ikstena is one of Latvia's best-known writers today. After her meeting with the editor from Soho Press, she returned to Latvia and published her first novel, Celebration of Life. Against the expectations of the Soho editor, it became a bestseller and was translated into several languages. Since then, Nora has published nearly a book a year, including novels, short stories, and biographies. She has won numerous awards for her writing, including the Order of the Three Stars and the Baltic Assembly Prize. Her most recent novel, Soviet Milk, has been her greatest success to date. The novel won the Latvian Literature Award for Best Prose and was so popular in Latvia that people lined up at libraries to get a copy. In order to meet demand, libraries across Latvia instituted a 24-hour loan policy for the book, a policy they had never needed before. Since its first printing in Latvian in 2015, the novel has achieved international fame and has been translated into over 20 languages. Hello Soho, indeed. Welcome to Crossing North, a podcast where we learn from Nordic and Baltic artists, scholars, and community members to better understand our world, our communities, and ourselves. Coming to you from the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle, I'm your host, Colin Joya Connors. The novel Soviet Milk spans the history of the Soviet occupation of Latvia from 1944 to 1991. This 47-year occupation undeniably had traumatic consequences for the entire nation, but it can be difficult for individuals who lived through the occupation to communicate that trauma to younger generations who grew up after the fall of the Soviet Union. Many contemporary Latvian novelists have written about the occupation, but Soviet milk struck a national nerve in a way that previous novels had not, a nerve that for many readers brought old traumas, feelings, and memories to the surface. I sat down with Soviet Milk author Nora Ikstena for an interview last year following a series of lectures she gave at the University of Washington. Our conversation brings up specific scenes in the novel, so if you are concerned about spoilers, you may want to read the novel before you continue listening to the rest of this episode. Nora described her initial book tour through Latvia as more of a psychotherapy session for her readers 
than a traditional meet and greet. I was going around for three years. I was going around to, I was in almost all libraries in Latvia. And that was like you said, that was like a psychotherapy uh, thing. So because people were, you know, telling their stories and it was like, it was not like reading, like meeting writer, because they were standing up and and then telling their stories. And I I really felt that the the book is like a healing for them, not only the book. Yes. Were, were they coming and telling their story directly to you, or were they standing up and telling yeah, it for they other are standing up and telling it publicly, and that was very surprising. That that surprised me a lot because, as I said, Latvians are 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 introverts, so they are not used to to to, to speak about their traumas or their experience. Yes. And that was so nice. I mean, old people, like 70 years old, yeah, standing up and and telling and then again and again and again. So I was like, you know, I was like a media between Mm -hmm. them. Yes, Mm -hmm. it was uh, it was a great feeling. Yeah. What made Soviet milk such a touchstone for the nation? Part of the answer is not only what the book has to say, but how it says it. The novel is narrated in first-person perspective, but from the dual perspective of a mother and her daughter. The narration almost gives the impression of a dialogue between the two characters, as each entry from the mother or the daughter is set in relief against the other, and the narration switches back and forth between the two voices. We could say it's kind of like maybe almost like a diary, but not exactly. We don't know if these people are actually speaking to each other or not, but we as the readers get their... Uh, perspective, their narrative constantly switching between the mother and the daughter, and about their memories living in Soviet-occupied Latvia, basically. This is assistant professor Lena Lee Rose, an expert on Baltic literature and film. The mother is born in the 1940s, just during the occupation when, when Soviets invaded Latvia. The daughter is born in the end of the 1960s, And both of them start their narratives with saying, I don't remember really the day I was born, but I think I have these bodily memories of what was happening then, because this time in Latvian history is so important. um, And they they feel like they kind of have a memory of it, even though they might not be able to exactly express what that memory is. Um, And so basically, the whole novel is this imagined dialogue between the mother and the daughter. And uh, the present day of the narrative, we could say, is about the end of 1970s, 1980s, as the daughter is growing up in Latvia. And her mother is experiencing really severe depression because, well, there's probably a lot of reasons for the depression, both psychological and social circumstances that the mother has to suffer from. Um, and the child is uh, trying to help, the daughter is trying to help the mother, but uh, it's not really possible. And so, spoiler alert, I guess, I don't know, can I say it? Go for it. What I happens? can always edit it yeah, out. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> so the mother uh, tries to commit suicide several times, and f- for a few times it th- doesn't succeed, but but in the end she does succeed. So, So the novel ends, actually, 
in the year when Latvia regains its independence and the mother has already committed suicide. So it's really kind of sad in the in the sense of this personal story of the family. But on the other hand, it has a happy ending for the more collective memory because it remembers again this uh, very emotionally high time of Latvian history, Latvian society, but it is like mm, made more complex by this traumatic memory. The dual narration between mother and daughter presents a story that speaks across generations and across the wide range of experiences of those who grew up during the occupation. The novel balances the personal memories of individuals with the collective memories of a nation made to drink the Kool-Aid, or milk, as it were. This is Nora again. About the mother's milk, or Soviet milk. The reason why, why I changed the title to English Market, everybody asks me why I did it, because uh, the original title is um, Mother's Milk. First, I think that this um, symbolic thing in this novel, the mother's milk, the daughter is not getting her mother's milk because it's poisoned, because the mother thinks it's poisoned. But it's not just this mother's milk. I think it is this milk of our poisoned uh, homeland, what we were supposed to drink during Soviet time. And I think this metaphor of milk, metaphor of mother's milk, metaphor of homeland's milk, it shows this way... How, how it was in Soviet times. And Soviet milk, it uh, works very well, actually, in, uh, in English market. And I, I had so, so many uh, stories, so many reviews, so many so interesting reviews about the book that the people are saying that actually they um, knew statistics about what happened under Iron Curtain but they don't know the real stories, what happened behind it. So they don't know these real personal stories. What was the life in, the, in, in Soviet Latvia in that time? Nora was born during the Soviet occupation, and many of the details in Soviet milk are based on Nora's own life and people she knew. The novel takes a deep dive into the trauma that many Latvians experience under Soviet rule by exploring these memories and the way that one person's experience touched the lives of everyone around them. The story challenges popular narratives of resistance by reminding us that while so often in literature resistance is heroic, in reality, often it is not. Living under the Soviet regime was a depression by itself, Mm -hmm. yes? And, uh, of course, uh, many people didn't survive, so they didn't... um, they didn't want to, to to take it as granted, yes. Of course, there were people who, who wanted to live happy lives and who are cooperated with the regime, but there, are pe- there were people who didn't want to do that. Mm-hmm. And in this particular story, can you imagine that the, the uh, father of the um, mother, uh, uh, he was deported to Siberia. Then uh, there, were, there was a letter saying that he's, uh, uh, he died in Siberia. And then afterwards, when my, when my personal grandma made a new life, mm-hmm. so he went back. And it was, it was a tragedy for him. It was a tragedy for a daughter, for a child, and also for my, my grandmother. And he didn't survive. He drank himself to death because he, he, he saw that 
that the, the wife and uh, daughter is waiting for him. But that's how how the life was. So, it. Uh, I mean, we, we we just. I mean, we are strong, and we <laughs> hopefully we think that we are strong, but we don't know how we can react under under circumstances like like this. Eek Stena's characters all react differently to the difficulties of living and working through an extended period of uncertainty. The novel's central mother-daughter relationship is, on the one hand, strained by the trauma of the Soviet state, and on the other hand, sustained by the unwavering love of individual Latvians. Mother and daughter, unnamed in the novel, face unique challenges. Once again, this is Lena Lee Rose. The mother works as a gynecologist, and uh, she decided to study medicine because uh, she was really interested in bodies in general and just like where they come from and um, was grappling with this question, why are we born here? And like, what are, what are the conditions where we are born into and how unfair some of these conditions are for different people, right? So like if we think of the mother who's growing up in the 50s and the 60s, she knows that something else is going on in the rest of the world, in, in Western, Western Europe or America. But she has to live in Soviet Union where she cannot have the freedom to say what she thinks and so forth. And her father was arrested, has been arrested by the Soviet officials and so on. So she's really, um, I think, in a really interesting way, tries to understand, yeah, wh- why are we born to this world? And so she goes to medicine books and starts reading more and more about it and uh, decides to become a doctor. And so uh, and she becomes a gynecologist, which means that she actually helps women to bring uh, new babies into this world. And she constantly then is again uh, troubled by this notion, I'm helping people to bring new people into this world, into this so-called cage, as she feels like she is living in in the Soviet Latvia. When I'm uh, thinking about uh, this time, I always have this double feeling because I remember my own memories, my youth memories, my, my, my childhood memories, and I have uh, some nostalgic feeling also towards this time because it was my it it was my childhood it was my youth and it was the funny things too in it so it was not a, just a tragic story and what you said also about the self irony i uh, this is also i mean we have such a anecdotes about the soviet time mm-hmm. so that we we can we can laugh like hell so for example i i remember my grandma she was uh, watching uh, news and then uh, uh, always Brezhnev appeared with, with, with his speeches. And Brezhnev had a very bad uh, prothesis. So, and, and the way how he was talking was a very funny way. And always, you know, I remember in my childhood that my grandma said, Oh, my God. He will lose his prothesis now. I know, I know, this time he will lose. And it is like, you know, it is like such a funny thing, yes? And that's, that's, that's how we were laughing about these, you know, episodes of, of this, of this, of this uh, stupid regime, yeah. But from the other hand, uh, I have this feeling that uh, we were living 
really we were living in a cage. And in, in my book, there is a metaphor with a hamster in a cage. And the hamster is eating up his uh, children because he doesn't want for them the, uh, the face, what he lived through, yes? And always the people are saying that it is a very horrible episode in my book. But I think it, it, was, it, it, it was true. It was true because uh, this mother who, is, uh, who wants to save her daughter from this uh, poisoned milk for her own, uh, her own poisoned milk and this poisoned milk of homeland, uh, she, uh, in a way she wants to save, uh, save her daughter. And that's, that's how it was. Uh, I mean, all the, like yesterday we were talking about the KGB deportations and everything. It, it, um, it influenced so much, uh, people's lives. So that, that it was a very, very tragic history. And, and now I, I mean, uh, when I'm thinking about the, the hundred years, we went through such a, such a very, very difficult history and we are still there. So. And that's uh, that's amazing. And we are speaking in our our language. We are independent uh, independent state, and we are in Europe again. So it's a, it's amazing history. Soviet Milk is one of thirteen new historical novels that tell the story of Latvia in the twentieth century. These novels were written by thirteen authors and published as a series called We Latvia: The Twentieth Century. The series editor worked closely with the authors to ensure the historical accuracy of each novel. But as many of the novels were based on the personal memories of the authors, this sometimes led to conflicts where personal memories and experiences were not able to be independently verified. We had uh, the very, uh, very good and very clever historical editor, and he was going through our uh, manuscripts and looking for, you know, small details like uh, looking that the, the authors are not lying about the history. And uh, uh, we were so upset with him because he was writing like 10 emails a day to each author after editing the, uh, editing the text. And with my novel, it was like this. So he, he wrote me, <clears throat> uh, one of your main hero's daughter cannot be unconscious before the Quinji's work in St. Petersburg, in Hermitage, because it was not in Hermitage. It was in Russian Museum of Arts. And I was so upset because this is my personal memory. I remember it, that I was unconscious before this Quinji art in Hermitage, not in the, the, uh, the art museum in St. Petersburg. And I was go- going through the archives at that time, and then I found out that for one year, Quinji was deposited. Yeah? On display. Exhibited. Yeah, yeah, yeah. From the art museum of uh, St. Petersburg Art Museum to Hermitage. And then I wrote to him, yes, <laughs> your personal memory wins. So, <laughs> You know, we were discussing about this because I think for, for novels like this, you need to be precise in details. You cannot use details which are, I mean, you look stupid, yes? 
But actually, I'm not, uh, me personally, as an author, I'm not from those authors who are like, you know, this is my text, don't touch it, yes? I, I'm, I'm working with my editor um, very carefully, and uh, I like all the advices what, what she gives me. For example, the main uh, hero in my novel is a doctor, gynecologist, so, and my mother is very good friend, uh, she's still she's still working as a gynecologist. So I was, you know, talking with her how it was in Soviet times, how was the details, how was this horrible things with abortions. When the uh, can you imagine that the doctors made like ten abortions or fifteen abortions a day? So and then they went home and they were drinking themselves till death because they they knew what they did. Yes. And all these uh, small details which are very, very important. Because in, uh, I had the reading in Minneapolis where the, the one doctor came and he said, Janis Dimans, and he said to me, wow, I was reading it. How, how, how do you know all of this? I said, yes, I had advisors. So you cannot just, you know, write fiction about life. <laughs> The novel's commitment to remain within the boundaries of the historical occupation is a large part of its appeal. Without such a grounding in historical fact and autobiographical accounts, a novel like Soviet Milk risks straying into dystopian fantasy. But sometimes the dividing line between reality and fiction is hard to find, especially when real actions by the state seem to be lifted from the pages of some of our most famous literary dystopias. And I think that for uh, readers is very important to have all these small details of history, uh, small, like, very alive details. For example, there is a hero, Winston, who comes, of course, from 1984 uh, by George Orwell, and uh, the the history uh, goes back like this. I discovered that the first translation of 1984 into Latvian was published in the 50s, in Sweden, in an exile publishing house. And then somebody took the book to Latvia, and then afterwards the KGB took the book, and then they, you know, locked it in a special archive. And this archive is, uh, was located at that time in a church in a city where I still live, in Ixchila. It's a small city near Riga. And then what the KGB did, they just uh, took off the covers because they didn't want to show the author and the title of the book. And then can you imagine this uh, young uh, doctor, woman in my book, that she is getting the text without the author, not knowing anything about George Orwell, not knowing anything about 1984, and she just reading the text and realizing that she lives in this text because it is what, what it is about. I sat down with assistant professor Lena Lee Rose to discuss how Nora's novel manages to walk this fine line between dystopian reality and dystopian fiction and still balance so many complex memories with grace and humor. One thing that I have noticed in uh, both Estonian and Latvian literature in the last five years or so, is that writers really like to um, incorporate the perspective of the child, of somebody who grows up just like this, who's born in the 60s. And we do get the mother's perspective too, but still I think the child, I would say, is the main character of the narrative because 
I don't know why. It just seems like it's more from her perspective, and we uh, we get the mother's experience in a very intimate way as well. But uh, it is it is through the child's uh, perspective, and so um, there there have been a lot of discussions because the way that writers use the child's eyes is to show the ordinary life of Soviet Union, Soviet occupation. And it is really interesting for the generations who didn't uh, grow up in that time because, first of all, it helps them to realize how traumatic it was because the child is very aware of, of how badly this has affected the mother's life and how, the dep- how much the depression, I think, definitely is... Um, is impacted by the Soviet occupation. Depression is has a lot of psychological um, issues too, of course, and it's not only about social environment, but oftentimes the environment can just uh, um, impact it so much more. And we, we see that uh, from the child's perspective. But on the other hand, she is living an ordinary life, an ordinary childhood, whatever that means, right? And of course, um, not everybody in the Soviet occupation maybe was able to have a happy childhood. But a lot of people did. And I, I, I would argue that even this child in a way had a happy childhood just because she she had her grandparents, she had her schoolmates. She was she was kind of enjoying sometimes just walking through the forest like a regular child perhaps would, right? Um, so even though she's aware of this traumatic reality around her, she's also just a child. And I think that's really uh, important for the way that people remember the Soviet occupation, because in the 1990s, a typical kind of grand narrative of cultural memory was we were victimized. That's all. It was all awful. There was no happy days, nothing. And Soviet occupation, the whole 50 years was seen as this long disruption of a linear history of the nation state, right? And so basically the danger with that kind of thinking was that those who were born during the 50 years, their memories, their experiences don't really, they're not as important unless they're this like uh, something that contributes to the narrative of only trauma, right? Otherwise, nothing that happened was really significant. So we have to go back to 1940, 1939, when Estonia was first invaded or Latvia was first invaded, and we have to like build our country up from that point, which is not possible. You can't just ignore 50 years. And so I think that the, the way that the Ixtena uses the child's everyday, the ordinary life, shows us that there were traumatic experiences and they were very difficult, but there were also ordinary days. There were also people who went about their life. They resisted in some small ways, but they sometimes had to make very difficult choices, decide where to give in and where not just in order to survive their life, right? Um, And I think that that's what really, yeah, makes this last... Uh, eight or five years of literature in Latvia really interesting and different from the 1990s. And uh, just to add to this topic of happy childhood, uh, Estonian president uh, a couple years ago said, it's not possible that anybody had a happy childhood in the Soviet occupation. And that's kind of an interesting way of like uh, an official authority to say how one is supposed to feel or even remember feeling like who can say actually what somebody's emotions were 
at that moment and and if somebody did feel happiness are they just supposed to pretend that they didn't what does it mean for the national memory or for the collective memory um so i think that again that's why uh, Soviet milk is really good because it shows that there were a lot of complex uh, narratives of memory for people. So there's almost like this other level to that concept too. So on one hand, we have this balance of being aware of the traumatic reality, but living your ordinary childhood, which can also be happy and shouldn't be forbidden to be happy by anybody in the from the future. But, uh, but then you have also this um, utopian idea, ideology of the Soviet Union that all the children are happy. And uh, all on the children's magazines, on posters all over the country, there's a lot of smiling children and the communist youth and the pioneers, right? Like all these organizations, children are very important for the politics of Soviet Union. And the smiling child is very typical for one to see. So I think that adds another layer to this because uh, so lots of people probably have written about it already. But one historian who writes about emotions in, East, in Eastern Europe uh, says that uh, sometimes the feeling of despair or or depression was just a way to resist this kind of utopian ideology of politics of emotions from the Soviet Union. So you have that there and then you have the trauma and the reality and the real sadness that comes from losing somebody close to you or losing your freedom. And then there's the ordinary life that's still happy sometimes. So it's like three different kinds of emotions constantly playing with each other and sometimes impacting each other. So it's this like double life that Nora talked about here. It comes up, up, I think, really interestingly with these emotions. And then secondly, <clears throat> thinking about the double life and what she said about mother's milk or the Soviet milk, the milk as, as uh, a poisoned milk of homeland made me think of uh, uh, how motherhood and mothers were depicted in the Soviet politics too. Again, this uh, good mother was this very often used trope to say every woman in Soviet Union has to be a good mother. They have to be a ha and their children are these smiling children who are happy with the Soviet politics. And the mother is a strong woman who works in the factory and has these wonderful children. And um, I think that uh, now this mother in uh, Ixtena's novel also understands the, the troubling double-sidedness of that image. Of course, she wants to help people to have uh, babies who want to have babies but then what does it like is she kind of helping to create this image of a good mother because mothers are so valued in Soviet Union like should one just not have children as a resistance to the Soviet politics I think that is a question that's uh, in the head of the mother although she doesn't explicitly express it that way but she very much grapples with what does it mean to give birth to this cage or to help people give birth so um so these double, doubling images of motherhood are also very important. Can you give more context on why the prime minister said this thing that you can't have a happy memory under? Why the president? Uh, the president. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, in, it was 2016 when she said that. And uh, people are trying to uh, understand what it means to have a, a traumatic memory for a nation. 
people, Russia, for example, has still not really acknowledged the traumatic experience that it caused for so many countries that it occupied. So I think that um, especially those people who are uh, on more official positions for a country and have some sort of a say to how do we identify ourselves as a nation which always has a memory, like a memory has such an important part for a nation, collective, unified, whatever, identity. But And so I think that these people just feel like they have to present some sort of a singular narrative. And... Uh, yeah, I think that's the main reason why the president felt the need to do that. Uh, perhaps it's also a, a reaction to the writers starting to write from the perspective of the children, right? As I mentioned, the last uh, almost a decade, I would say now, so many different stories um, that present this ordinary life of a child. Uh, maybe that's also another reason why why president felt like... But this was not... You know, maybe it's like a worry that it's going to go to the other extreme and people are going to believe that Soviet Union wasn't as bad. Because there are people who say that too, unfortunately. Somebody just recently asked me, but was Soviet occupation that bad, really? And I wanted to say, have you not read history books? So then I wanted to go to the same space almost as the president and say, think about the tens of thousands of people who died. Think about all these traumatic experiences. While I, as a researcher, always want to kind of not only talk about the trauma, but also talk about the normal life, the ordinary life. It's a very... The balance is important. <laughs> I think Nora Ixtena's book tries to tries to find the balance, and that's maybe why this two narrator uh, form of the book is really helpful. Uh, and speaking of kind of a, maybe a, this multi-voiced discourse, a lot of the previous novels, I'm, I'm more familiar with Estonian literature, but also I've read quite a lot of Latvian and there's a lot of similarities. Um, when novels that were depicting similar kind of uh, time periods, <clears throat> traumatic um, Soviet occupation, also Nazi occupation before it for three years, there are oftentimes dialogues within narrative, but it's often between the perpetrators and the victims trying to understand each other, trying to understand why the perpetrator would choose to, um, let's say, um, say that their neighbors should be sent to Siberia because they want their house. That's what happened too. It's very important that novels were, were starting to show that not all Estonians were victims, not all Latvians were victims. There were also perpetrators among them. So there's a lot of kind of multi-voiced narratives between these different um, positions. But why Nora Ixtena's book is, is differs from that is that it uh, puts into dialogue two people who are both in a way victims of the system of the oppression, but they experience it in a very different way. And they also resolve, uh, it resolves itself to them in a very different way. So yeah, the balance, balance of memories. What's the effect of not having names for these characters? Perhaps it is, um, yeah, it, it would be hard to say is this, this, this does not represent the story of everybody in Latvia. But I think that uh, because she uses so many different characters who mother and daughter are meeting, 
and this kind of dialogue between generations. It helps people to recognize certain things from their life, I think, either the daughter's experience or the mother's experience. So I think that's perhaps kind of serves a therapeutic um, value for the readers. Uh, but I think that the <clears throat> perhaps one of the values of the novel too is that even though it can speak to a lot of people in Latvia, it does not attempt to represent the grand narrative of collective memory. It's just a story of a, of a family at the same time. So I think that's that's really nice during the time when it could be tempting to find some sort of a single unified narrative, which always excludes some people. But uh, I think I like um, that she wants to have the facts and details of history correct, even if even if this is not autobiography, because it is such an important um, story for Latvians, for other people who were occupied by Soviet Union, that um, that is what makes it more relatable to people, that they realize this, what, this kind of story could have very easily happened and probably did to many of many of them or as as we said earlier people recognize certain details or certain parts of these stories but if they saw okay this is not possible this couldn't have happened because this painting was never in their midrash then it kind of perhaps takes some of their recognition away because then you think okay maybe this is all made up it's just a dystopia difference between reality and dystopia i guess is important Right. Then you have that that questioning of, is this just that political propagandic res propaganda. mm -hmm. response, mm -hmm. uh, yeah. either for or against? Because we're dealing right. with very with, with memories that uh, get used in political ways, and mm -hmm. that has consequences for people's lives. Absolutely, and. Um, one very famous memory theorist, Pierre Nora, said this term, sites of memory, right? That people, there are, there are these certain sites of memory that people have in the collective memories of nations or families or even personal memories. But the recent uh, theorists who work with memories a lot say that it's a little bit... Um, not as not as correct to say a site of memory because often the way it's used is like a very national rigid site of memory which is not changed and that's where we get these grand narratives that exclude certain people's experiences such as that there's no happiness or that there's only um, happiness right uh, and instead we should talk about uh, dynamics of memory or which because memory is constantly fluctuating right and I think that's where we get to this balance and who can say what is balance but I think a novel that shows memory that is that is in fluctuation is the best kind of novel to deal with memory because it doesn't uh, claim that it has all the answers or doesn't claim some sort of a grand narrative it's just about people's lives. To learn more about Nora Ekstena and her writing, look for the link in the show notes and on our website to her profile on Latvian literature, where you can find a catalog of her publications, translations, and reviews of her work. 
Special thanks to Lena Lee Rose, who completed her PhD in 2018 at the University of Washington. She recently accepted a position as Assistant Professor in Scandinavian Studies in the Nordic Unit of the Department of German, Nordic, and Slavic at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Crossing North is a production of the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at the University of Washington in Seattle. Today's episode was written, edited, and produced by me, Colin Joya Connors. Special thanks to visiting lecturer of Danish, Christian Nesbø. Today's music was used with permission by Christian Ronar Paulsen. Links to his music can be found in the show notes for this episode or on our website. Visit scandinavian.washington.edu to learn more about the podcast and other exciting projects hosted by the Scandinavian Studies Department. If you are a current or prospective student, consider taking a course or declaring a major. If you like this episode, sign up for Scandinavian 152A, Introduction to Latvian Literary and Cultural History. And while you're at it, sign up for a Latvian language course too. The University of Washington is the only university in the country to offer language courses in all three Baltic languages, Estonian, Latvian, and Lithuanian. You can find complete course listings for the Scandinavian Studies Department and Baltic Studies Program at scandinavian.washington.edu. Once again, that's scandinavian.washington.edu.